uh, I will go ahead and read the chapter now. That is not what I want. Just a minute. How did that happen? Um, just a minute. Not sure what's going on. That's out of sequence. Wow. Sorry. Um, okay, I'm sorry, Robert. I just, it sort of went haywire here, and it said the device needed to restart, so it's giving me troubles. Yeah, I, I tried to wave that off and uh, just started closing stuff. Good to go. Okay. Yeah, it was it was still up, so. All right, thanks. Good to go, sure. Okay. Apparently I did something wrong. Hey, what? So they're not like they should be. Sorry. But uh, this is a surefire way, and it's been working for years. So, I mean, my Bible. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and just read it from here. And uh, the version I happen to have with me this morning is the old King James. Okay, at least for, it looks like what I somehow did was got like slide number three substituted for slide number two. But anyway, here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. If, now I'll switch back to the slide here. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Well, for goodness sakes, why did it do that? Okay. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. All right. Okay, so the outline is real simple. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, the, the sufficient grace of God, and 2, the surpassing glory of the new covenant. I may not be the preacher, but I'm the son of a preacher, so these uh, alliterated uh, uh, outlines uh, you know, are irresistible. But anyway, it, it fit with this uh, 
passage. Okay, so let's go through by verses now. Verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? So the surmise here and the uh, commentators seemed uh, pretty uh, unanimous, as far as the ones that I was able to find, uh, that uh, was their view, and, and it makes sense, that uh, you know Paul had enemies in Corinth, probably some who had come in from elsewhere, probably Judaizers, and that uh, they had accused Paul of a number of things, notably, probably, of uh, self-praise. Again, there's this feeling that you get sometimes in, in 2 Corinthians, as he's answering things that are going on in the church at Corinth, that you're, uh, you're listening to one side of a telephone conversation, and that you can tell the th- other things that are said on the other end that you can't hear by the responses that are made. At least it seems that way. Of course, we don't know this, as far as I know, we don't know that of a certainty, so, you know, I was a little bit uh, conditional in my language here. Uh, apparently, others there had accused him of self-praise. It's possible that that wasn't the case. And that it looks like the enemies, his enemies, his, those who opposed him, those who were detractors and maybe were Judaizers, had letters of recommendation from other churches. And they came and they said, hey, we've got a letter from the church at Jerusalem that says we're... Uh, good teachers. I suspect those letters probably didn't say these people are to be preferred above the Apostle Paul. I just suspect it didn't say that, but uh, that they were using it that way. Anyway, Paul says, look, we're not, it's it's not about me commending myself or about me and my my companions in ministry here commending ourselves. And it's not as though we need a letter of recommendation. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with a letter of recommendation or a letter of introduction. Uh, letter of fellowship, whatever you want to call it, but we don't need that with you. He says, uh, verses 2 and 3 and 4, I'll consider them together. Some of them are very short little verses here. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but in tablets of flesh, that is, tablets of the heart. We have such trust through Christ toward God. So the point here is the Christians at Corinth through the validation of Paul's ministry. I remember a friend of mine, um, somewhat younger, and uh, he had one brother, and his father uh, was a, uh, a pastor and uh, Bible college professor at, at you know, varying times. And I remember him saying that his father had said to him and to his brother, said, uh, boys, you are the validation of my ministry. Kind of uh, going on the, the scriptural uh, qualifications there of the, the elder, that he has faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. And maybe beyond that, just that uh, Phil and his brother um, Nathan uh, were, uh, not, not my Nathan, but Nathan Brown, uh, Phil and Nathan you know, they were the, uh, in a sense, they were more shaped by their father's uh, ministry than in anyone else. They um, were the recipients of more of his teaching than anyone else. And, and if they were following the Lord, and if they were holding to true doctrine, and if they were doing what they should, that was a validation of their father's ministry. And as others might look at, uh, at uh, Brother Brown and say, well, uh, what, how, what kind of a teacher is he, and how good of a teacher is he of, of the scriptures, and how good is he at discipling and of teaching other folks to follow the Lord? And they look at Nathan and at Phil, uh, the, the two uh, brown sons, and, and they'd say, well, yeah, he's doing pretty well. And everything I knew of those young men uh, spoke well of their father. And in the same way, the uh, Christians at Corinth were Paul's spiritual children. He says, you have many fathers according to the flesh, but, but spiritually you have one father. For he says, I've begotten you in Christ. And uh, so the fact that the believers at Corinth were in Christ and that they were walking uh, with Christ and that they were serving the Lord, you know, all that was going on good in them spiritually was uh, a validation of Paul's ministry. Now, I think it's, I find it somewhat a comfort making that comparison and as a father and thinking um, I, that way, that, of course, everything was not perfect at Corinth. Everything was not, 
as we know, it, it was a church, and, and, you know, churches are full of people, and things that are full of people are full of problems, and uh, churches have problems, right? And I've seen a few churches in my day, and they all had problems and, uh, and difficulties, and churches do. And the church at Corinth certainly did. <clears throat> and, yeah, Paul said, you know, you are our letter. Uh, and he's willing to take them and their Christian testimony uh, as uh, his letter of recommendation of his ministry. And um, that is comforting to me because we look at some, you know, uh, now, not, of course, my children who are perfect, but, uh, uh, well, only Mary. But uh, anyway, I'm, of course, perhaps being facetious, except about Mary. But, um, and Nathan. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, they're pretty good. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, we, we might look at our family and think, oh, you know, they take after my bad quality in this, and it looks like they've learned my bad trade in that too, oh my, and, uh, and sometimes be dismayed. But the Apostle Paul was willing to look at the church at Corinth with all the stuff that was going on there and say, but you are our letter. You are my letter of recommendation. Uh, the fact that you're in the Lord and you're following the Lord and you're called to be holy. So it wasn't all bad at Corinth. And uh, we shouldn't expect it to be perfect among any human beings in this life who are still here and not in the millennium yet. And, uh, you know, someday we'll be called into the, the uh, presence of an innumerable, innumerable company of angels and of the spirits of just men made perfect. But we're not there yet. And the just men aren't made perfect yet, nor the women either. But... Uh, there's still his letter of recommendation. He says, and, and such trust, and we have such trust through Christ towards God. This is by faith too. You know, my confidence in, in the, his confidence in the church at Corinth, that, that, that you're doing well, that was about faith in, in Christ who had begun a good work in them and was bound to continue it. And the faith that we have in our children that, you know, uh, that we've, we've tried to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And uh, we know the proverbial wisdom of God says that when you do that, uh, then the tendency is for them, tendency may be a little too weak of a word, uh, to not depart from it when they're old. And, and he says, you know, I've taught you what was right, and I have confidence that that's going to bear fruit in your lives, and that will be my letter of recommendation. Verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now remember him back in chapter 2 last week, Paul asked, who is sufficient for these things? He said, you know, we are the savor of life unto life and the savor of death unto death. And those that are perishing, we're the savor of, of death. Um, we, we bring the message of, of salvation, and, and they, reject, they reject faith in Christ. And that they do that to their own spiritual death. And yet, we bring the message of salvation, and those who believe it and accept it, uh, that, that is the, the aroma, the sweet aroma of life in them. And he says, and who is sufficient for these things? Sufficient to bring the message of life to those who are dead in sin. And, of course, he doesn't answer it in chapter 2. And, and I think the implied answer when he poses that question in chapter 2, who is sufficient for this? No one is. No one is sufficient of himself. You know, to say, well, I am good enough. It's a good thing God picked me because I am the one who can do it. And that's not true. That's exactly what's not true. And uh, none of us should, should be telling ourselves, uh, isn't God lucky that he found me? Ridiculous statements like that. Yes, cringeworthy statements like that, because they're surely false. Um, but um, no, far from it. We're not sufficient. Who is? And you know, if the Apostle Paul felt that, uh, the Apostle Paul felt, who's, who's sufficient for this? Like, you know, I'm not. Much more we, by far. And, uh, and yet, he says, we're not sufficient of ourselves sufficient to be bringing the message of life 
to people who are dead in trespasses and sins, but uh, our sufficiency is of God, who has made us sufficient ministers. The um, um, Old King James, which I read, I was reading the Old King James, is able ministers uh, of the uh, New Covenant. But the word is the same. The Greek word is the same for sufficient. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, uh, but it's God that makes us sufficient, whom he chooses, and, uh, and our, he's made us sufficient ministers of the New Covenant. Sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant, to get the wording right there. So, so this is the implied answer to Paul's question. None of us are, not even the Apostle Paul, is sufficient to bring this message to dying people. But um, God makes sufficient those whom he chooses to be his, uh, his ministers. And that is uh, a very, very heavy responsibility. Okay. Whoops, whoops. I think I hit it twice. No, no, I did not. All right, here we go. Verses 7 and 8. Now we get to the surpassing glory of the new covenant. You know, he kind of transitioned to this in, in the preceding verse. He said, he's made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant or the new testament. And now in verse 7, he begins the second, past, second and longer section of the chapter in which he talks about the surpassing glory of the new covenant. This so much surpasses the old covenant. Now remember, this is against the background that it seems to be implied that there were Judaizing teachers in Corinth. You know, it seemed like they were always around, uh, wanting to go around and teach people that the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the faith of Christianity needed to be much more Jewish than, well, than it did. And that you have to be Jewish and you have to come under all the ceremonial law, etc., 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 with all the things, uh, uh, physical alteration and what have you, that uh, were required by that. And Paul is teaching, no, that's not true. And that is a recurring theme in Paul's ministry. And there seem to have been Judaizers there who are really teaching that we're still under this old covenant, still under the covenant of law. So we get to the surpassing glory of the new covenant. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So the ministry of death calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death. Wow, that seems harsh, maybe. Um, Aren't you being too negative, Paul? Well, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, so no, he's not being too negative. But this is the, the law of God. Now, elsewhere in, uh, in Romans, Paul says, you know, the law is, is good and pure and right and just, but it's a ministry of death. Well, how's that? Well, because the law makes sin visible. You know, it's like in Voyage uh, of the Dawn Treader, uh, uh, Something for making, making invisible things visible. And uh, it reminds me of when I was in elementary school. In one of the elementary schools I was in, and I don't know, this may have gone on for a couple of years, but uh, they would have like a dental health um, day there in elementary school. And, and some hygienist would come, I think, and I forget what all we did. But I, did, I remember we got free stuff, so it was cool. Because free stuff was always cool. And uh, you'd get a free toothbrush and uh, a little sample thing of toothpaste, and you got these little little tablets. I don't know if you got them. You got them too? Uh, yeah, several of us did. And there's a little tablet, and you chew it, and it tasted kind of good, but uh, if you chewed it, then it would, it would color any plaque that was on your teeth dark red. And uh, the parts of your teeth that were clean and didn't have any plaque on them, they would just still be white, almost. And, uh, and then the place where there's black on your teeth, it would be red. <clears throat> we won't say uh, how much red was to be seen on, on our teeth, but, uh, you know, it was like, oh, well, that's motivational, I guess, that you need to brush better. But it made plaque visible. You know, plaque is normally, I guess, to our eyes, uh, I, the hygienist seems to be able to see it, but then they're trained for that, right? But uh, to us, normally, plaque looks fairly white, 
more or less, insofar as your teeth are white. And it doesn't show up that much, at least when you're a kid, certainly. But, um, you know, you take that pill, and all of a sudden you can see all the plaque that's on your teeth. And the law was like the tablet. The law made sin visible. Uh, and elsewhere, he talks about how, you know, before the law came, there was no offense, but when the law came, then the offense was multiplied because uh, it, it showed the sinfulness of man. It revealed. He said, when the law came, sin revived. <clears throat> uh, before the law, you know, he was a sinner. He was apart from God, but he didn't know it. It wasn't apparent. It wasn't visible. He didn't really know that he was in rebellion against God. I guess... He wasn't in rebellion, but he was a sinner, right, before he knew about the law or before man knew about the law. But then the law came and people knew what God wanted. They knew what God's righteousness said, and they knew they weren't doing it. What's more, they knew they didn't want to. I mean, maybe they wanted credit for it, but they like their sin and they want to keep on in it, don't they? And that's how people, uh, fallen human beings, are that way. They kind of like their sin and they want to keep on with it. Until they're awakened by the Holy Spirit and he convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, of course, then, even then, there's conflict. And the, the evil that they would, they, they do not, uh, they do. And the, the good that they, you know, evil that they would not, that they do. And the good that they would, that they do not. Uh, and that was the state of one who's, who's awakened. But uh, before being awakened by the law, well, they don't even know. But the law made sin visible. And so it revealed that man was under sentence of death. And not just physical death, but eternal death. That was the, you know, the soul that sins, it shall die. So the law was a ministry of death. It said you are under sentence of eternal death because you don't conform to the righteousness of God. Yet even so, the giving of the law was glorious. It was a glorious occasion. And of course, you read back there in Exodus about Moses' face shining uh, and um, how the people were, were disturbed by Moses' face. Don't, don't show us your face, you know. It, it's scary, and put that veil on. And so Moses got in the habit of veiling his face when he had been talking to God, when he had been communing with God directly. And um, he would go, and, the, and Exodus says, he would go, you know, he would come out of the tabernacle to talk to the people, and he put a veil on his face so they wouldn't see his face shining. And then he'd go into the temple to talk to God again, he'd take the veil off, and he'd talk to God face to face without the veil. Uh, but then he'd come out, uh, and I don't, I don't think that means he saw God's face, uh, because of elsewhere talking about uh, seeing the, the hinder parts of God's glory. But uh, anyway, he um, would, would put a veil on when he went before the people so that they would not see the glory. So there was extreme glory. And that's an unusual thing. If somebody's face shines so much that people are, are dazzled by it, I don't know if that means that literal light, like photons were pouring out of his face and literal light, and you could, you know, read a book in the nighttime by the light of it or something. I don't know. Uh, I know it was, it was something that seemed like light to them. His face was shining so much. There was so much glory on his face, and uh, it, it scared them, and it was dazzling to them. Uh, and yet that was with the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant was less glorious because uh, it was passing away, and, and how so? Well, for one thing, the, the shining of Moses' face would pass away. He didn't have to wear a veil all the time, only when he had just been talking to God. And then he came out, and uh, in course of time, his face would not shine like that anymore. I don't know if you, you could make that a metaphor for us communing with God, and our faces maybe don't literally shine, uh, like that, but if people, if people would see the glory of God on us, my, that would be good. And as as uh, friend said, how do you? I've said it before. How do you fake God coming through me? Well, you don't fake. It. You can't fake it. And yet, that's what we want. We want to be so filled with the Spirit and so continually being filled with the Spirit that the glory of God would shine through us. But anyway, with Moses' face, he would come out of the tabernacle, and that would eventually go away. And it, wouldn't, it wasn't like a permanent state of Moses' face. But also, the old covenant, the, the covenant of the law, was temporary. That was destined to be done away. Because Christ would come, and Christ would fulfill all the righteousness of the law on our behalf. 
and uh, by, by dying on the cross. And when he said it was finished, and the angel tore the, the veil in the temple, showing that the way into the holy, uh, uh, the holy of holies was open for anyone, any repentant sinner through Christ, uh, that old covenant was done away. So that was passing away. And yet even a covenant, even a, a covenant that was passing away was glorious. And the new covenant is eternal. So its, glorious is, for, so its glory is both permanent and greater. It has greater glory because it's permanent. You know, it's not going to be done away. This, this plan of salvation, this, this is it. This is, you know, um, and of course, this is not to say that people under the old covenant were saved any other way than through Christ. But they were saved by looking forward to the one whom God would provide. And there was much that they didn't know about that. They knew God will provide, a Messiah will come, and he's going to take care of it for us, and we need to trust in that one who will come. But you think how much they didn't know that is revealed to us. All the things in the New Testament that are described as mysteries, that they could not figure out at all until God revealed, and God revealed it in the New Testament to us. You think how Peter says that when uh, the prophets, even the prophets in the Old Testament, they search what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did testify. When he uh, testified beforehand the uh, sufferings of Christ and the glory that should be revealed in him. And it was revealed to them, not unto themselves, but unto us they testified these things. So even the Old Testament prophecies were written in such a way that they didn't fully reveal to the people who wrote them down the things that they now reveal to us. So much more is revealed to us, and we have a much more glorious covenant. And the way of salvation, I don't know. I don't want to say maybe nothing. Undoubtedly, there are many things about God and God's ways that we don't know yet, and we'll know when we see him face to face. Then I shall know even as, I, even as also I am known. Now I know in part. But as to the way of salvation, I think we know that uh, in, in great part. And uh, salvation uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's it. All the way in, at least until we... I'm, no, we may learn more when we get to heaven, but that is the way of salvation, period. All right, whoops. forget which computer I'm using. Verses 10 and 11. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Well, I've already touched on some of this. Um, The new covenant outshines the old. The old covenant was glorious, but something that's temporary, well, it's temporary. And that reduces its glory. That The fact that the old covenant was a preliminary to the new that it was going to be superseded by the new makes it less glorious. It had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And because the new covenant was much more glorious, it outshines the old. It's like trying to read your cell phone screen uh, in, the, in the broad daylight, in the sunshine outside. You can hardly see the thing. Sometimes I just give up. I'm not going to be able to see my cell phone screen in this bright sunshine. But at night, uh, if, if you're in bed and it's dark in the room and you decide to look at your cell phone to see what time it is, and my goodness, you think it lights up the whole room. Uh, it, it has great light, and yet uh, it's, it's exceeded. It's, it has no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And the old covenant, glorious though it was, is excelled by the new. So there are Judaizers. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So the new covenant gives us hope. Now remember that hope in the sense that the Bible uses it is not of the same sense in which we sometimes use hope. Actually, the word hope is used in two different senses in our common parlance in English today. And one is similar to the sense in which the Bible uses it, and one is not. Uh, the sense that is similar to uh, what the Bible uses, and this is when it's used in a negative sense, we'll use the expression today, oh, he has no hope. Uh, you know, by which uh, somebody's in a bad situation and he has no realistic expectation of a good outcome in that situation. There's no hope for him. You know, uh, 
so and so mountain climber is stuck on the top of Mount Everest and it's freezing cold and and he can't get down and so there's no hope for him. There's no realistic expectation. There's no grounds to expect that this is going to have a good outcome. That's now that's a negative sense. So what's the hope there? The hope is a realistic well-founded expectation of good things to come. And that's the sense in which the Bible uses it. But we also use hope in, the sense, uh, in a sense that is not what the Bible uses, in uh, a, a fond but probably ill-founded wish for the future. So, um, well, someone said, well, is your candidate, whoever your candidate is, is your candidate going to win Tuesday? I'm like, well... I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, and depending on the tone of voice and how it's said, that may indicate which sense of it you're using. So I have good hopes that my candidate will win on Tuesday. Uh, and, uh, or say, uh, you know, well, I hope so. And you know, if someone asks you, um, when you die, or when the Lord Jesus comes back, are you going to stand justified before him? The answer, the correct answer is not, well, I hope so. That is not the correct answer. That's not the right answer to have. There's no reason to have an answer that bad. We have a sure and certain hope that enters into the veil. Uh, We have a confident expectation of good. You know, I mentioned this recently, and I mention it from time to time, and it continues to strike me. I've been more and more impressed in recent months and over the course of this year how many of the promises of God to us, and then as these are reflected in the hymns that we sing, how many of the hymns that we sing reflect the hope, the the sure and confident hope we have, the well-founded expectation of good things to come that we have beyond this life in heaven. And... um, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think my hope is built on nothing less, which we're singing today. And, uh, and Robert mentioned uh, before class that I think Dennis and I have been, been overlapping hymns, and, and uh, usually I, I do better at, at keeping track of what hymns are sung so that I don't repeat them that much. I think Dennis and I have both been thinking about having hope and confident expectation of good and uh, in, these, in these unsettled times and a few things have happened this year that have not necessarily been uh, pleasing, like a pandemic and uh, riots and imminent prospect of more riots and an election, and, and uh, the Lord knows what's coming out of all that. And, and uh, we can pray. That's what we can do. But anyway, um, uh, hymns that reassure us. But I've been struck But how much of that when they talk about the hope that we have, it's a hope that we have beyond this life. It's not, you know, my hope is built on nothing less. What hope? Well, my hope that um, I won't lose my job. My hope that I'll have plenty of money. And my hope that I'll be in good health and uh, strength for a long time to come. And my hope that my family will be okay here on this earth. But it's not really talking about any of those things, is it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Uh, And that's not my hope for uh, not losing my job or my hope that the Cubs will win the pennant. Oh, that's silly. They never do. Um, (laughs) I have better hopes than that, that's for sure. Um, Or or whatever. It's not my hopes for any of those things. It's my hope of heaven. And that is a solid hope. It's steadfast and sure, and it enters into that which is beyond the veil. So this gives us hope, a confident expectation of good things to come. At the people's request, Moses covered his shining face with a veil. This is a metaphor for the fact that truth was only partially revealed under the Old Covenant, as I mentioned before. In the New Covenant, the way of salvation is fully revealed, and we can declare it plainly and boldly. Therefore, we use great boldness of speech or great plainness of speech. Not that we are gratuitously offensive, not that we go out of our way to stomp on people's toes, but we can go ahead and say that uh, regarding the Lord Jesus that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And no, the Muslim God is not the same, and no, is 
Islam will not get you to heaven, and Judaism will not get you to heaven unless you, you believe and put your faith in the Jewish Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And we can say that plainly and boldly. 14 and 15, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So the minds of the Israelites were blinded or, or hardened, uh, that word could also be translated, so that, and is sometimes translated, so that they could not fully understand, and often they did not obey the law. They received the law from angels, and, but they didn't keep it. Uh, and, uh, of course, they had broken uh, a whole bunch of the commandments before Moses even got the first set of tablets of stone down off the mountain. And uh, they continued to be problematic afterwards. And they didn't fully understand and they did not always obey. They often did not obey. Uh, the law, the law could not change their heart and, uh, and, uh, not, and the plan of salvation was not fully revealed to them how their hearts would, could, someday hearts could be changed. Uh, they, and uh, to this day, he says, to the day of his writing, so the Jewish, those who follow the Jewish faith. Now, not know those who are of Jewish ethnicity, because many within the church were of Jewish ethnicity, but that's not what he talk, he's talking about. But those who follow the Jewish faith to that day, and indeed those who follow the Jewish faith to this day, um, um, do not, uh, do not see that the Old Testament points clearly to Christ. Um, and so it is. They, they continue not to see that. In verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Um, when, uh, and several ways this could be interpreted. And it looks like the, um, even, even as far as to interpret the verse, because the New King James translators Right, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord. The old King James, I think, says, nevertheless, when it turns to the Lord, or it, the veil is taken away. In some languages, it's difficult. Yeah, you can't distinguish whether it's it or he or one is meant. And this may be so in Greek. I really don't know enough Greek to say so. Uh, but um, when Israel's heart seeks the Lord, it will become clear that the Old Testament points to Christ. In fact, when anyone seeks the Lord it becomes clear that the Old Testament scriptures point to Christ. Jesus said, if any man will do the Father's will, he will know the uh, doctrine I, I preach, whether, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And then he said also that, um, um, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are them which testify of me. So the Old Testament scriptures testify of Christ. And one who is... Desire, who honestly desires to follow God and to know the truth, will see, will be able to see in the Old Testament scriptures now that uh, Christ is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Um, and you think how many of the scriptures in the Old Testament, again, you couldn't see that until it was fulfilled. And I, um, I constantly am reminded of how often in the Gospels we read that the disciples you know, afterward, the disciples remembered that this had been written of him. You know, when he comes into Jerusalem on uh, the colt of a donkey, and the disciples, afterward, they remembered that the scriptures testified this of him. They remembered this prophecy. So it wasn't uh, regarding the Old Testament prophecies as the New Testament approached. It wasn't, uh, oh, you know, I'll bet he's, he's getting ready to get a donkey someplace and ride into Jerusalem because it, that's prophesied. They didn't say that. They weren't thinking that, but when he did it, they realized, oh, yes, of course, that was what had to happen. I suspect it'll be that way with us, with the second coming. And when all those things come to pass, and afterward, and we'll say, well, yes, of course, that's what it meant. Why couldn't we see that all along? But uh, now, at this time, we are in such quandaries to, is this, is this, or that, or the other thing, the, the harbinger of his coming, we just don't know. Well, okay, verse, whoops, verse, hmm, we'll get it here in a minute. Oh, 
Whoops. No, no. There we go. It's just delayed. Okay, verse 17. Ah, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The old King James says, now the Lord is that Spirit. So it's a, um, a word that points to something. You know, we've been talking about a Spirit, and this is, the Lord is that Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit we've been talking about. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So, the Lord, whom Paul mentioned in verse 16, is the same Spirit he had mentioned back in verse 6, saying that God had made him a minister, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. He's made us sufficient ministers, sufficient as ministers, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So, not ministers of the Old Testament law, like some, he might have said, like some who seem to be hanging around Corinth, trying to teach you that you need to conform to the ceremonial law and all the aspects of Jewishness, and that you have to be Jewish, uh, you have to conform to the full Jewish faith in order to be a Christian. Not so, he says, God has made us sufficient as ministers, not of the law, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, that is where the Lord is present in the heart of the believer. So in any believer, the Lord is present. There is liberty. Now I know as, as good Americans, we'd like to think that this means that that means we have our good old freedoms and we can uh, oh, always come and go as we please. And... and uh, work hard and get ahead financially and worship. And, and I like freedom of worship. I sure I like all those things. I like my First Amendment rights, and I like my Second Amendment rights, and, and uh, uh, I like all the rest of them too. And uh, I, like the, I like the Ninth and Tenth Amendment that says I've got other rights that they didn't even write down. Uh, well, but that's not what this is talking about. Uh, it, may, it may all be true. The Ten Amendments may be true, but that's not what this is talking about, the kind of liberty that we have here. And, you know, and we value our freedoms, and, and I want to keep them. I really do want to keep them. And I hope my children will enjoy the freedoms that, that we have enjoyed, I've enjoyed in my life. Honestly, I, I, when I said, I just now said I hope my children will enjoy the freedoms that I've enjoyed. I'm afraid I just used the word hope in the, not so optimistic modern sense. Will my children enjoy the freedoms that I have? Oh, I hope so, but I don't know how that's going to come about. My, it doesn't look very promising to me for that to happen, but I hope so. But that's not what this is, is talking about, and this kind of liberty, yes, where the Spirit of the Lord is, they can enjoy. Um, our, our fathers um, in dungeons... Etc. We're still in heart and conscience free. I can't remember all the words that line from faith of our fathers. Well, so what liberty? Well, the liberty to speak boldly and plainly. So since we have this hope, we use great boldness or great plainness of speech. And so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty to speak plainly. Now, not necessarily liberty not to be persecuted for, for your bold and plain speaking. And Paul regularly was persecuted for his bold and plain speaking. He would come to town and he'd speak in the synagogue and he would speak boldly and say things like, since you consider yourself unworthy of eternal life, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that was a pretty bold and plain thing to say to the Jews. And so they would do various things like take certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and start a riot. Imagine anybody orchestrating and planning a riot. I was just reading that there's like 450 of them planned for next week. This week, actually. Well, anyway, we'll see. By only one of several organizations which are planning riots. I mean, mostly peaceful demonstrations. But anyway, uh, you know, the mo kind of mostly peaceful demonstrations where they burn things down, loot, and beat people up. But no, theoretically, that's not supposed to happen. But anyway, well. Anyway, but no... Apostle Paul would come and he would get mobbed, he got stoned, he, he got whipped, uh, left for dead, 
all those things happened to him because he was bold in plain speech. So you say, wow, Paul didn't have liberty to speak, not in this world, but he had spiritual liberty to speak. He had that confidence from God that this is the thing for me to say, and I can go ahead and boldly say it. You know, there are some things that I don't have liberty to speak. I mean, you know what? I could say some things, but I'm not going to say that. You know, and, and some things you have half a mind to say. Do you ever have half a mind to say things? I don't know if you use that, that expression. And usually, especially since I've gotten old, <laughs> I, I have sense enough not to say uh, half the things I have only half a mind to say. Actually, more than half. Probably be better if I didn't say any of them. Of uh, the things I have half a mind to say, those are the things that get me in trouble. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But, um, but th- there are some things I have liberty to say, and these are they. So, and liberty to look with unveiled face on the glory of God. You know, we can experience as much of gl- God's glory as we're willing to seek as we come before his mercy seat uh, in prayer. And we have liberty to fulfill the righteousness that the law could never impart. Whether we fully use our liberty or not is another question. But we have that uh, liberty to... to uh, live for God in a way, to a degree, that the Old Testament saints did not have. Whoopsie. Get it right here. Last verse, as we run out of time. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here's how I expanded this. As we Christians, we all, not just Moses or some high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies once a place, once a year with blood of others. Um, no, not just one person. And there was no one else like Moses. He said, you know, and there arose no other prophet like Moses who talked to God face to face. But no, now we all Christians, all we believers, without any veil hiding the truth from us. There's no veil over the truth of Scripture now. That that doesn't necessarily mean that we understand everything in it, but we can understand all things needful for life and godliness in it. No veil hiding the truth from us. We see as if in a mirror. That's a hard one. You're know, saying we see it as if in a mirror. Because a mirror looks back at me. When I look in a mirror, I usually see myself. Well, what do we see in the mirror? Well, we see Christ, who is a reflection a beaming forth of the glory of God. So uh, is, is it that we have this mirror held up to God? Maybe, well, you wouldn't watch an eclipse that way because you would damage your eyes. But you know how we use, um, oh, what did we use? Box with a hole in it, and you look, and you see the eclipse there. But you, that kind of thing. Um, we, can't, we can't look directly on the face of God directly, but we can see Christ, that is, we can learn about Christ and his word and know things about him, and, and he can be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, and thus we see the glory of God. And, and sometimes I wonder, do we see Christ revealed in us? I don't know. I'm out on a limb a little bit here. That as we are in Christ, and as we abide in Christ, and as we walk with Christ, and as we are changed, because that's the next bit there, we are changed, We are changed from one stage of glory into the next greater stage of glory, into each next greater stage of glory. We are changed from glory to glory to glory to glory and onward, uh, more and more like the Lord Jesus. And Is it that we, as we perceive ourselves being changed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ, And we realize that this is not my little self-improvement program. This is not any of my little self-improvement programs like Ben Franklin. I keep track of how many times. That's all very well, but that's nice. But that doesn't make you like Christ. But this is someone is changing me from the inside out and making me more and more like Christ. How is it that I often have sense enough not to say the things I only have half a mind to say? Um, the The Lord is helping me. Wow, that's something. And so often we see, and, and we need to see, that the Lord still has much to do with us. There is much room for improvement. And uh, uh, I'm, 
I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, but still I'll pray till heaven I've found. Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Oh, there's higher ground to be gained, but we see God is actually doing something to me, and it's not me. God is doing it to me, and um, that is, is a glorious realization, too. I, that may be included there. I've wondered, but I don't know for sure. Well, we are being changed from glory to glory by God's Holy Spirit. To me, this is one of the most glorious verses in the New Testament. This is a verse that I like, a favorite verse of mine, that we're being changed from glory to glory. That when we came to Christ, he counted us righteous or engaged to count us righteous when the books would be open. And then he began to, not having imputed, having imputed righteousness to us, he began to impart righteousness to us. And then he, he continues to do so, continuing the work that he's begun on us as we uh, continue in him. And he's changing us from glory to glory. I'm reminded of a song that we used to sing when I was a boy. Now, let's see if I can remember the words. Um, no, I'll probably forget them all right from the start. Um, I shall be like, um, when I have reached the more excellent glory and all my trials are past, I shall be like him. Oh, wonderful story. I shall be like him at last. I shall be like him. I shall be like him. And in his glory shall shine. I shall be like him, wonderfully like him, Jesus, my Savior divine. We shall not wait till the glorious morning breaks on our vision so fair. Now we may welcome the heavenly dawning. Now we his image may share. And so in the chorus, and by the way, as, as he is, so are we in the world. So although we are not perfectly like him, we are not completely like him, we are still to be changed as long as we remain in this life into further glories of likeness of Christ. Yet we are already being changed into his likeness and bearing his likeness. And that's an exciting thought to me. Well, okay, thank you for your attention. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for uh, your uh, uh, power and, and your grace in our hearts, working and changing us into the likeness of your Son. We pray that you would do so in us more and more. We pray that you would use today's services to accomplish another step in that. We pray that you would bless in the service to follow. We pray that you would bless your, service, your servant as he brings your word to us and give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.